0: Welcome to episode 149 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you. In this world I do.
0: Hey, brother. What's good, brother? You
1: know, I can't complain. It's a good Lord's Day, good time, good family, good fun. Can't, just can't complain. I'm glad. Is that
0: in response to how I totally Jesus juked you last time on the denials?
1: No, I, I was just <laughs> hashtag blessed. <laughs> All
0: right. Well done.
1: <laughs> how about you? Are you good?
0: Yeah, I'm fine. I love that hashtag blessed thing. Although I do see that everywhere. I feel like that's equal parts sincere and equal parts a joke on the social media places. Is that true?
1: Yeah, like some people use it in an unironic way, and then there's the people who make fun of those people. So you'll have like the stereotypical like white girl who's like, started my day without with pumpkin spice latte, hashtag blessed. (laughs) And then you have people who endlessly mock that kind of thing. So I'm somewhere right in the middle right now. Like I really am hashtag blessed, but I'm also making fun of people who use hashtag blessed.
0: That's good coverage. Speaking of which, this is neither an affirmation nor a denial, but I heard this rumor that Starbucks for some strange and perhaps ungodly reason has decided to release the pumpkin spice latte stuff super early. Have you heard this?
1: I haven't, but it doesn't surprise me. It's one of those things that's it's like the department stores are like racing to get the Halloween stuff out. So, Pretty much as soon as back to school is done, the the pumpkins and the jack-o'-lanterns will come out.
0: Yeah, you can't stop this. I, it just seems like when does things do things stop moving more forward, like in time in the seasonal calendar? That has to stop at some point, right? It's unsustainable the march and speed at which it's moving.
1: Yeah, there's at some point it actually becomes moving backwards. Exactly, like, like the other direction. Like they're gonna be like releasing pumpkin spice latte in. All of a sudden, seem to be like, oh, wait, we're still going, and it's, it's like, <laughs> February. Or now the, it's March, and it's,
0: we're still going. Or the holiday is like, just passed. Yeah. And they're like, it's November 1st. Get your PSL at Starbucks. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's going to be great. Well, I feel like that's as good as any as a segue into some affirmations <laughs> and denials. Let's start with denials this week. Let's just switch right. it up. Let's go crazy. What do you Let's got do that it. you're denying? So...
1: I'm going to do a little bit of a strange maneuver this week. And my affirmation and my denial are actually the same thing. What? So I'm denying theology simply profound for completely scooping us on the book of Malachi. (laughs) So we were all excited about this Malachi thing. I did all my research. I actually did research like. This is the first time ever that I've done research for this podcast. I got all my commentaries. I did all my reading. And Tuesday rolls around. And Rob McKenzie in that deep, rumbly voice is like, we're going to go through the Prophet Malachi. And I was like, come on. So that's my denial. It's getting scooped for (laughs) this series. So that's also my affirmation because it's a fabulous show. They do a great job. So make sure you check out their malachi series uh the first episode was really good Uh, i was kind of like at first i was like oh man and then i was like oh we can just listen to their show to do all of our prep
0: (laughs) exactly so (laughs) which by the way there was an overwhelming response in our inbox and online from people saying did you guys (laughs) know (laughs) that theology simply profound just also did malachi and they started almost the exact same time like this was i know exactly in line and this isn't the first time this has actually happened to us
1: no i mean it happened on the eschatology cast even like we were doing this eschatology series and then the new geneva podcast which is a great podcast by the way uh all of a sudden they're like oh yeah we're gonna have scott clark come on and do all millennialism so (laughs) you can't see the look on my face but you could probably (laughs) hear it in my voice
0: Yeah, that's what made me laugh, but I realized that that was not great podcasting for everybody else. It's all good.
1: So I'm denying that, but I'm also affirming that. So,
0: Jesse, what are are you denying? I will allow it. This is a semi-serious denial about stuff that we've talked about before, and I can keep it pretty brief here. I'm just once again denying against churches not having well-defined doctrinal statements. It's just so problematic. And even if it's not problematic, it's often not helpful. So I think it just would be a wonderful exercise of everybody who was listening to this podcast, whether or not they went to a confessional church, really started to bring to the forefront these ideas like to their leadership of having something that was a really firm and established document that would help in matters of faith and practice. Because yeah. man, the more I just read the confessions, the more I've just grown to appreciate them as these wonderful guidelines. And they're not meant to... They're not meant to supplant the scriptures. I think the, the, um, since this is my denial, I'm just going to go right out with some strong language. I think the immature response is to say that when we refer to confessions that we're really trying to do is not use the scriptures or rely on a source that's above them. And that's just not true. And I think the more that you read them, the more that you find that these documents push you always back into the scriptures, especially if you have a, a copy that has, of course, all the proof texting in it. But it's right. never meant to say, just take this at face value. That's why the scriptures are there. It's to say, in the Reading Rainbow sense, kind of like, here it is, but you don't have to take my word for it. So right. it's, that was Reading Rainbow, right?
1: I don't, I don't know. It's what? been a long time since I've watched Reading Rainbow.
0: Oh, man, we got to get on that. Somebody, I can
1: hear the theme song in my head, though, now. Look what it, you've done to me. It's in a book? Yeah. Take a look. It's reading, Rainbow.
0: <laughs> I think that's right, but I'm sure somebody will come at us hard and correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So I just think that it would just behoove so many churches to work in a direction where they're coming under unity to some kind of really well-defined standard. Yeah. And I think that everybody could benefit from that. So I'm, I'm really denying against that being seen as something that's unnecessary or too restrictive these days.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I think the other thing people get nervous about with with confessions and with their churches adopting them is they feel like it's going to be like impossible to retain members um, if they have too firm or too thorough of a doctrinal statement. Right. And on one sense, like, so what? Like, who cares? Like if your church is going to like people are going to be pushed away because you have too clear of a doctrinal statement and like your doctrine is too consistent, then so what? I mean, I I get the the existential angst of that. But on the other side of it, like it's perfectly possible to adopt as a church, a confession of faith as your faith statement without requiring some sort of strict subscription by everybody who's a member. Of course. So, most people don't realize this, but like in the OPC or the PCA, um, and I don't know much about like um, Arbica, which is like the Reformed Baptist denomination that's really popular in sort of the Southwest. Most of those situations, the OPC and the PCA, people who are members at the church are not required to affirm the, the confession. They're, they're not required to subscribe to the confession. So the bar for membership in the church is much lower than full subscription. Right. And Historically speaking, confessions have been predominantly used as a test for ministers, but some churches are starting to um, pull in like a full subscription model for their members. And as you would expect, their membership tends to be very small. Um, But the people who are members of those churches really know what they what they believe and really hold to it. But you, you can have sort of both of the both of best worlds. Like you can have a a confession of faith that's required for the congregation to up, uphold and affirm that's much lower on the precision scale and much lower on the clarity scale than the actual confession is. But it would still benefit, I think, most churches to have somewhere in their doctrin- collection of doctrinal uh, documents, some sort of more robust confession of faith that says something like, this document is the full expression of what our church believes. Right even though we only require this subset of beliefs of our members, you know, there, there's there's a negotiation to be had there. So if you're a person who's going to your church leadership and saying, hey, I'm, I'm coming under this conviction that we really need to have a more thorough doctrinal statement, you don't have to go in and be like, hey, everybody who doesn't believe the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, get out of here. Like, you don't have to be like that. So I think there's a lot of room for growth and a lot of room for, like, Uh, like a middle ground that allows for kind of both the best worlds. I mean, that's not a bad
0: start, but I I hear you're going on that. Yeah. Maybe this is a sub-denial then as well. I want to take it a step further and say I'm denying against the somewhat dismissive and sometimes pejorative attitude of churches that aren't, let's say, like traditionally reformed against the London Baptist or the Westminster because... I think, no, this is, depends on your church government and your denomination. Some are well established in like the means and the methods by which something like that would have to move forward to be actually enacted into some kind of church governance. But I think even beyond that, they often get dismissed because of they, they carry this reform connotation, rightfully right. so. But for some reason, they get dismissed because of that as not valid or not applicable. And I think that's maybe also what where I'm feeling these days. That's yeah. rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. Is I would be fine with my church, any church, patterning patterning their stuff off of one of those confessions, not even using it writ large. But there's just it's just so much value in it, and I just hate yeah. for them to be dismissed as like, well, that's nice. That's something like you believe but we subscribe to this particular method, or we're really big picture, or we're really big tent, whatever language you want to use, that basically is is code for everything is ambiguous, and we just follow Jesus. I follow Jesus too, but he made specific claims. He also taught specific things, and he gave us specific rules for life, which we ought to be favorably disposed toward articulating in a way that is helpful, especially in our church. And I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I might take that even one step further and say that I think the best thing to do would be to bring some kind of you know confession of faith in, some kind of articulation. And then at the very least have your your pastors of course, but also like your elders subscribe to that in full. Right. With varying degrees of subscription for membership, because I, I think that, that at that level in terms of like your your leaders, which include worship music and your elders need to have a very, very firm theological base if we're to be expected to fall under their leadership and of course go to them in help for issues of rules of life and faith.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Oh, great. (laughs) Show
0: done.
1: (laughs) We already did my my affirmation. So I think we're back to you now.
0: Oh, okay. Back. That's right. Cause you, you uh, combined those bad boys in kind of a really creative way, actually. So you and I spoke a little bit, ago about Paul Cox. You remember this? So yes. he is the founder, proprietor of a website and a business called RefTunes. He makes incredible cartoons with kind of connections to reform theology and uh, reform theologians, pastors. So you should definitely check his website at reftunes.com. But what I want to affirm with is he is finally getting published his book, his grand masterpiece called The Pilgrim's Progress, A Poetic Journey. And H&E Publishing is going to take care of putting this out. And you can actually go and pre-order this. So this will be available for the, master, the masters, the masses. <laughs> and its release date is officially September 1st. So it's just coming up. So we can try to put a link in the show notes, which means that this will never actually happen. So the best way for you to find this book <laughs> is probably just to Google A Pilgrim's Progress, A Poetic Journey, uh, or h Publishing, and it should come right up for you. But I'm definitely going to pick this up. I mean, basically what this is, is a book, an illustrated children's book based on John Bunyan's beloved story, The Pilgrim's Progress. And we already spoken at length about, we saw some of the illustrations for this when he was doing the Kickstarter. It's just really brilliant. It's really clever he and his wife put together a wonderful summary of the book. And whether you're an adult or a child, you're going to get something out of this because it's really just yeah. great. So you can pre-order this for $15.99. Like that's, that's actually less than it was on the Kickstarter. So yeah. that's a fantastic deal. So buy one for yourself, buy one for your church's library. If your church doesn't have a library, this is how you start it by buying this book. Buy it for parents that have children that are in your life. Buy it for nieces, nephews, grandparents, Buy it for me and Tony, but get a copy because it's definitely going to be worth it.
1: Yeah, and you know Paul is is a friend of the show. He um he did our logo for the public domain, which we are working a little bit on a reboot. Um, we're going to try to get some some better content out. But he he was gracious enough to uh, give us that logo free of charge. Um, And so he he's just a good friend of the show. He's an excellent artist. Um, You know, follow him on Twitter. He's got these most creative ways of tying in reformed theology with these famous figures and famous quotes. And he just is a really clever, uh, really well put together artist. Um, You know, I'm not I'm not one of those people that's really big into art, but his style is just so good and so unique that it's really I, I really think people would do well to just sort of take a look.
0: It's very winsome and clever, right?
1: Yeah, it is. It's just it's hard to, like, describe what I'm thinking. I'm not like maybe I need to get better with words. But like, it is, it just, it, it makes you want to study and learn more about the history of the Reformation. Um, and, and you can share that. I mean, I don't have kids, but like, you can share that with the children in your life, whether it's your own children or children at your church and the Pilgrim's Progress that you put together is really just a good way to kind of get them interested in, not just in, in their faith, but in like the history of Christianity and the history of their faith as well.
0: I kind of have mixed feelings about Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan in the sense that this is one of those books that's upheld as such a classic and for good reason, but it's also one of those things that I feel like, or sense often that people have read, but don't really understand. And some myself included, I've read it a couple of times. It's heavy and it's heady. Like the, the allegories are deep and it takes a little processing. And if you read it, of course, in the original language that he wrote it in, it's, it's tough. It's not easy.
1: Yeah. Bunyan was one of those writers who, was probably more brilliant than people give him credit for. And the Pilgrim's Progress, I think people, they start to read it. I've, I've actually never made it all the way through the Pilgrim's Progress. I think I've probably read every part of the Pilgrim's Progress at various points, but I've never read it from start to finish. And, um, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, it's this great allegory. And then you start reading it and you're like, what the heck is this mean? <laughs> and you you just get confused. <laughs> right. And it takes a lot of like it takes a lot of like discipline and perseverance to even get through it because it it has really long slow periods. and It has really like almost like adventure action type stuff where stuff is really kind of happening. Um And so you really have to work at it, but this book that he's put together kind of distills it down, makes it digestible, makes it approachable and kind of pulls out the most important parts of it and presents it in appealing format.
0: For sure. Everybody gets some.
1: Yep. And buy me a copy. (laughs) Just one though. I don't need, I don't need multiple copies.
0: You're about to get like, you know, a dozen copies of this book.
1: (laughs) Jesse, before we go on to our topic, can I share a review that we got on iTunes with you? Of course, please. Um, it, it's a review and I'm a little bit confused by it because all it says, you know, how, like reviews have titles on yes. iTunes. All it says is judgmental. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's five stars <laughs> and it says yeep. Y E E E E E E E E P uh-huh. just period. Yes. Period. Yes, please. <laughs> Wow.
0: That is I don't so know if complex. they if they
1: like it or if they don't like it. So if you are M Rupert, who left us a review on July 29th, could you maybe like email us at info at reform brotherhood and let us
0: know what you actually were talking about? I mean, oh, I appreciate great. the
1: five stars, but I'm really confused.
0: That is great. Best review ever. So yeah, either we are so judgmental and this particular listener finds that so appealing. Right. Or this is some kind of strange irony that they're trying to express that I just don't understand, given the yeah, five stars.
1: <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand. Maybe he's judgmental. Maybe like that he was calling himself. Ju- I, I don't know. I'm very confused. So M. Rupert, please write in. Let us know what's going on. We would love. Are you OK? Is everything OK? Is what I want to know.
0: Yeah, maybe what we have here is, is some kind of strange like taken situation where he's trying to send yeah. us a signal or a message that's he's been taken against his will and yeah. especially that how do you think uh, can you give me your reading of that first word that you said Yeep. <laughs> what what even as an expression what what is it,
1: what is that even i don't know i don't know if it's like an exaggerated form of yep like yep i, I don't know I'm, i i have this just this picture of him like he's in europe and he just got back from it's the pub Europe. with his friends. <laughs> and all of a sudden, uh, someone grabs him and puts him, throws him in the car. And he's like, I got to do something quick. I know. I'll give a, a, a review with a name that implies that I'm not satisfied with the show. And then I'll give a five star and I'll give a comment that is very com- confusing. That'll tell them for sure that I'm in trouble. <laughs> I, I just I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, the last time I was this confused, it was when we were nominated as the top 50 healthcare firm in the country. <laughs> I thought um, you were
0: going to bring that back to Pilgrim's Progress.
1: Yeah, I do think I figured out it, it is my LinkedIn that's making this connection between our podcast and healthcare, because I got I got a a message on LinkedIn that was inviting me to participate in a brand new podcast about healthcare initiatives. So the, the connection between me as a supervisor at a hospital and me as a podcaster has now created this new persona of me as a healthcare podcaster. Worlds colliding. I know it's, it's, it's pretty epic.
0: When is your new healthcare podcast coming out?
1: I don't know. But Theology Simply Profound is probably going to do it first.
0: (laughs) I'm sure their next series, they're going to be like, all right, we're going to be talking about HIPAA next. We're going to be like, (laughs) come on.
1: I know. All right. We should probably like get into our our topic at some point.
0: Oh, yeah. I guess that is something that we should probably get going on.
1: Yes. So we decided uh, with the feedback of our listeners who all freaked out because we got scooped Uh, We decided to take a little bit of a left turn. And instead of doing the Italian prophet Malachi, we're going to go ahead and go with the Judean prophet Micah. (laughs) So basically
0: the same, only different. Because that's how we roll. You can't stop us. You can't tell us what to do. We will switch it up on you.
1: Yeah. So I, I scrambled most of the day yesterday trying to read commentaries. Uh, Hopefully I have some sort of semblance of knowing what's going on with this book, but uh, we're excited to sort of dig in. I'm personally excited to dig in because the minor prophets are an area of the scriptures that I've read through and I kind of I understand the themes and the the big picture, but I've never really dug in and, and dived into the uh, minor prophets in any real depth. I mean, I think everybody's probably done a little bit of work in Jonah just because it's one of those books that like everybody studied. It's a little bit easier to get into. It's a little bit easier to go through. Um, But other than that, it's kind of been one of those like dip your toe in and check it out and pull out like a a lesson here or a teaching here kind of a thing. Like you hear this verse at Christmas time and you hear this verse Um, You know, when you're getting through the liturgical calendar and it's Advent, so you're going to talk out of of parts of Malachi or whatever. Um, But I don't think that most people spend a lot of time really studying the minor prophets.
0: I think that's fair. I mean, the minor prophets, you generally know if you're kind of in the evangelical community as the dudes that are just putting God's people on blast. And so you roll through them and you're looking through all these different admonishments that are coming against God's people and there's historical references. You're just kind of like, yeah, I assume like this is all happening, but I don't really have a good sense of the timeline or who are these guys are, are under in terms of the Kings. And you're right. Our minds tend to go to like, the verses that we hear. And sometimes we just hear them completely out of context. For instance, so in Micah, what verse comes to your mind when you hear the book Mi- of Micah?
1: Micah six, eight, of course. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Which is a great verse, but it's, that's often, I think for the most part, all we hear from Micah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, that's one of those verses that it's not like, um, the way that we think about Micah six, eight radically changes, when we understand the context, but the context still informs how we should think about Micah six eight. Right. And so so we'll we'll find out it when we get there. Micah is just blasting the people of of Israel and Judah. And so he, it's this long section, I mean long is relative, but it's it's this section of Micah where he basically is just telling the people of Israel and Judah that their time is up. Their 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 rope has reached its end and now they're going to face judgment. And then in the context of that, he basically comes out with this thing that's like, but you shouldn't be surprised because God has told you what he expects of you. Right. And what is it that he requires, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So it's in the context of that judgment that he's basically saying, we, we think of Micah 6, 8, and we think of it in sort of this like encouraging fashion of like, oh, yeah, that's so great. It's got to do justice and blah, blah, blah. But in reality, it's it's actually such strong law because he's he's saying like, you don't even understand the basics of your religion, which is just to be be just people. To, to be kind and merciful people and to walk right. humbly with God, you can't even do the basic stuff. So so we'll get into more details when we get there, obviously. But I think that this book particularly has a lot to tell us in our modern age, because the church right now, I think, is probably a lot more like Judah and Israel in Micah's day than than it is like Judah and Israel in David's day, for example. I think that the church is kind of in this, the cusp of sort of going into exile and there's, there's wolves and there's wheat and tare, there's wolves among the sheep. And, and it's very much a situation like uh, Micah was speaking into in Israel. So I think there's a lot that the church could really learn from a study of Micah right now.
0: I totally agree. That was one of the things actually that came right to my mind as I started looking into this book because there's so much in here that I think even we'll talk about today about the syncretism and the conflation of all these religious ideas and this appearance of religiosity while having a heart that is far from God. Yeah. I mean, in the example you gave with Micah six 8, that's very close to Jesus in his confrontation with the Sadducees saying, you basically, you guys don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And more or right. less, that's what Micah is the charge he's levying against God's people. So there's something there for us in this modern sense, because... I think many of us, many of the religious expressions that we have today are, in fact, very far from God. But we're also trying to bring in every other expression in the name of temperance and tolerance. And in doing so, we're making so many compromises. So I actually really love that we switched this up and called Audible and went to Micah, because the thing about Micah in comparison to Malachi is Micah, I feel like, is like the international prophet of mystery. Because in a sense, like, well, his parentage is not known, but there's something really interesting, like, just from the top, and this may seem, like, really trite, but just in the name, right? Because there are other Micahs in the Bible. It's a shortened version of the Hebrew name. But what's interesting is it means, who is like the Lord? And some have speculated that that is actually a reference to Moses' song, When the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and they're singing about who is like our God, who can deliver us like this, who is like the Lord. But what's interesting is that even though we know, we really know nothing about him except, like, where he comes from, but yeah. beyond, even before that, this idea that here's a dude we don't know anything about except his name. And his name is very specific. And, of course, in Hebrew culture, not unlike our own, oftentimes parents were going to name their children as kind of a portent to what they'd expect from them or, or what they anticipated their life to be. And so he, certainly he is from some kind of parentage that did love the Lord, did follow after the Lord. And so here we have a guy who's relatively unknown, has this really unique and strong name. And then also what I love about him, because of where I grew up and where you currently live, is that he's a rural guy. Most of the yeah. prophets, or a lot of the prophets, are coming from more urban environments. So he's probably a contemporary of Isaiah, probably younger and outliving Isaiah in terms of his ministry. But he was from like a productive agriculture area. And so he was a country resident removed from like the national politics and religion, but he was chosen by God to deliver a message of judgment to the princes and the people of Jerusalem. So he's a really interesting character. Even before we get into the message that God has given to him, he's just this really more or less random dude living in somewhat of a faraway off place, close to the Philistine territory of Gath. And he probably had a very interesting life because I think part of what we'll find as we go through the book is the message he's delivering is both the one that's been given to him sovereignly, but God in his providence has tasked him with this message because it's clear, I think from the words he speaks that there is a personal pain and connection with the things that he's bringing forward. So yeah. I actually find him super interesting though. There's very little for us to actually go on about him as a character.
1: Yeah. So why don't we just jump in and, and we'll read this first uh, verse here, which like most of the prophets, um, the first verse or the prologue, which is usually just, you know, a verse or two serves to set up who the prophet is in this case, where he's from and to root Micah historically within a a chronology of the Kings of Israel. And so verse one says the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Kings of Judah, Which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, and so you're right in that he um, he ministered in uh, the same around the same time as at least part of um, part of Isaiah's uh, ministry. He did probably outlive Isaiah. He probably ministered after him. There's actually some passages in Micah that are almost verbatim, word for word. um, Right the same as Isaiah. And, you know, the commentators are split about what that means. Most of the more conservative reform commentaries that I've looked at, are quick to say, like, that doesn't mean that he copied Isaiah. We we, should, we don't have, not that there would be anything wrong with him copying or using sources, but really what we have is independent attestation to the prophecy that was delivered by prophecies that were delivered by Isaiah and Micah. The right. fact that the, the prophecies are delivered by two different people who come from two different backgrounds and that parts of them are delivered at the same time in the same words to the same people is, is independent attestation station of their veracity. And I don't want to get off into the speculation train too much, but this is something that I saw that I thought was very interesting and something that we probably need to like write down and explore in a different podcast. But if you read here, it says the word of the Lord that came to Micah, and then it ta- you know gives us this historical information and then then what does it say here? which he saw, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So a tiny bit of speculation, but actually I think it's exegetically grounded here. There's a lot of places in the scripture where the word of the Lord is treated as though it's a person presenting a message. And so the language a lot of times says the word of the Lord came and said to Jeremiah or to Abraham or whatever. But it's interesting that that what we have is, he didn't hear the word of the Lord. He saw the word of the Lord. So what what I actually think is going on here is this is a, this is a prophecy. This is a message that was delivered to Micah by a vision or by, um, by an appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Now, like I said, we probably need to take that and, and talk about it in a different podcast, but there are major Trinitarian implications to the fact that it's not the word of the Lord that he heard, making it an impersonal thing or like a message that he received, but it's the word of the Lord that he saw who gave him the message.
0: Right. And there is some, I don't want to say like pattern or normative expression there but I like what you what you went with there because there is something unique about how God presents this word to his prophets and we find the exact same thing in Revelation, right? I mean right. basically in Revelation 1, it's interesting that the command that God gives to John through Jesus is write what you see in a book and send it right. to the seven churches. So there is something there because no matter what we do with it in terms of it, it's still difficult for us to understand exactly what is being meant there. We're seeing that the word of God is unlike any other word. in, in other words, this is what distinguishes it for instance, from like Muhammad's revelation. There is something about the, the word of God, the expression of God, the prophecy of God that is so authoritative that it supersedes even just like the hearing. Um, it is also in its visualization oftentimes. Yeah. So it's, it's weighty. It's heavy. It comes at us in a way that is uh, more pronounced than we might expect.
1: Yeah, and just to just to sort of ground that before we move on, if you flip back just one book to the prophet Jonah, here's how Jonah opens. It says, "Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying." So, so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says and gives him a command. Right. So we shouldn't read that. Um some translations try to smooth that out because it feels clumsy and they smooth that out as basically saying like this is the word of the Lord which was given to Jonah but but what we have instead is the word of the Lord is a figure who comes to Jonah and gives him a command. He doesn't he the the, the command arise and go to Nineveh. That's not uh, that's not the prophecy. That's a command that the Lord or the word of the Lord gives to Jonah. And so when we see that in the beginning of Micah and we see that it's the word of the Lord that Micah saw, what we should understand, I think I think I'm on fair ground. You can tell me if I'm not. What I think we have again is we have. A figure called the word of the Lord coming to Micah and delivering to him a message, which he is then to give to those. So he sees the word of the Lord, and this vision of the word of the Lord is what drives his prophecy forward. Um, you know, there's the prophets are swept up into the counsel of God in a ver- variety of ways, right. but in this instance, there's a personal element. There's an interpersonal exchange that happens between the word of the Lord and um, and Micah that I, I think is really interesting.
0: I think you're on fair ground there. I think we have to consider what it would be like to be in the shoes of the prophet, to receive a message from God, and to move forward with such a confidence that what they're doing is in fact from God. So it, it makes sense to me, at least logically speaking, that God might work in these ways to be very explicit about his presence by giving this word to yeah. such a degree that there is no doubt that what they're doing is moving forward with the plans of God as a mouthpiece for God. Because I think that any of these men, again, we, we spoke only so briefly about Micah and his presumed background just because of his name. But presumably these men would be very concerned about worshiping God and honoring him, honoring him rightly. And yeah. might, by that definition, need some kind of assurance, so to speak, that they were doing exactly that. And so it makes yeah. sense to me that God might come with this kind of power and this kind of presentation.
1: Yeah, and I I do think it's important to recognize too, the prophets, and this is another way that um, the prophecies and the prophets of Israel are different than the prophets that you might read about in other ancient Near Eastern civilizations. Um, Muhammad is another one of those things he's given kind of sort of this timeless revelation that for the most part is um, not grounded in any specific history. Right. Um, the, the, the revelation given to Muhammad is not grounded in history. And then the Quran is largely a historical account of Muhammad's response to this revelation that he's given. So, um, but well, what we have here is a prophecy which give it, is given during a specific time frame um, or several different oracles, several, several different prophecies that are given to Micah during a specific dated time frame. right? When you read ancient historical writing, this indication of the kings, that would be like us writing or saying, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jesse, the prophet in the year 2017, right? It's that specific. That's as specific as they can get with their, their, their sort of pattern of, of dating things. This is, this is screaming to everyone who would read it. This is a real event that happened in real history. This isn't, this isn't uh, pious reflections um, from a former era. This isn't, this isn't some guy wanting to make it sound as though this is an ancient document. This is grounding this in real history, as far as when Micah received this prophecy or these prophecies.
0: And so many of those prophecies, because from the beginning, as you said, they're grounded in a specific dec- discrete interval. The prophecies themselves of course, are meant in many ways to also coexist in that discrete time period. In other words, there's a timer on them, so to speak. Right. And so what I find interesting is that, and maybe we can speak a little bit about the, the context and the powers that were at play at this particular time, but some of the predictions are super bold, and I think we fail to appreciate that unless we kind of put ourselves into the historical context and understand something about the political powers that are at play in this time. But just for instance... Assyria was the dominant power and was a constant threat to Judah at that time. Right. But here's what Micah does is through the power of God, he predicts that Babylon who was then under the Assyrian rule would conquer Judah. And that's a really remote, like if you were in that time and you were a betting person, you wouldn't take those odds. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. So it's just amazing that when we can spend just a little bit of time familiarizing ourselves with the context, Mm -hmm. we can see just how amazing these prophecies are and how they would have dramatically brought to light God's sovereign power and his ability to, as the scriptures say, basically take the kingdoms in his hand and turn them like water in whatever direction that he desires. So it's just wonderful that we can see the glory of God by just spending a little bit of time picking up the details of the history.
1: Yeah. So the way that this series is going to unfold before we move on to the next uh, little section here is we're going to try to work our way through uh, usually just one or two pericopes, uh, which is just the technical way to say like a discrete unit in the text. Um, we're following, just for simplicity's sake, we're following the way that the ESV has broken up the text. Um, the The, the de- delineations are not inspired. So if you have a Bible that breaks it up differently, um, then there's not anything wrong with that. But this, for the sake of this uh, structure of this series, we're just going to follow the ESC's formatting. So we're just going to pick a chunk and we're going to work our way through it. And we're going to talk about it. Um, so I'm going to read verses two uh, through four here. It says, hear you people. And this is the beginning of the actual prophecy that he was given. It says, hear you people, all of you pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before fire, like water poured down a steep place. So this this is a um, this is sort of like he comes out of the gate swinging, right? It's a very strong statement. Um, of the universality of God's rule, right? He's, he's issuing this proclamation to all people, not just to the inhabitants of Judah and uh, Samaria, which we'll find out is the the primary target audience here. But this, this prophecy, this Oracle is for everyone. Um, The whole earth is told to pay attention. And so when we see that, it says that the Lord will be a witness against you. It's not just talking about Samaria. So that's, that's the first thing that struck me about this is that this Sometimes we read the minor prophets and we're like, oh, great. He's railing against Israel again. What does this have to do with me? Except in some vague sense of like, well, you know, Israel was the representation of all people. Like we have this representative view, which is certainly true. um, And that, you know, it points to our need for a savior. But this oracle, this prophecy specifically is extended to the whole earth. So whatever it says about the judgment of the earth, the judgment of all people, that's applicable to our day and age now, too. And so the the fact that the Lord is coming out of his temple for this judgment, we shouldn't necessarily think about this in terms of just the temple in Jerusalem, just the temple right. in Judah. This is, this is the Lord's heavenly temple. So it's pointing towards his universal reign, his transcendent reign, that he's sovereign over all of creation, not just sovereign over this little postage stamp sized kingdom in the Middle East.
0: Right. In other words, In some ways, you don't want God to come out of his temple at you in judgment. Right. Because what we're basically saying here is that when he's awakened in his wrath, the day of the Lord is a terrible day. Yep. And so he goes right from the start into that. And I think it might be helpful to kind of expand on the fact that when we look at the book in general— even at, out of the gate, like you said, the prophecy is kind of arranged in three oracles or cycles. And each one begins with this admonition to hear. And that word to hear, to listen up, is for everybody. It's not like a specific term. It's not like, hey, you guys over there. It's everyone listen, here. Right. This is hear what I'm about to say. And so within each oracle, he moves from doom to hope. Doom because... He's referencing and speaking to a people who have broken God's law given at Sinai and yet hope because of God's unchanging covenant with our forefathers. So we're going to see that, I think, like throughout the book, there is this this going back and forth. And they exist in contrariety because we've talked so much before about law and gospel and how here we have like the coalescence of both of them in a way that expresses this beautiful relationship that God has with us, that He is consistent with his punishment of sin. And yet at the same time, he does not forget his covenant people. He never does. So one third of the book targets the sins of his people. Another third looks at the punishment of God to come. And then I would say like another third promises hope for the faithful after judgment. And so right. this is why I really affirm your comments that there's so much in this that is contemporary. That, that is a timeless message. And the same judgment that God is bringing to bear and expressing through Micah is the same one we need to hear today because the punishment essentially is the same, though the expression of that in the time period in which he's speaking is just different.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you know, we sometimes think that like, we we treat God like there are areas that are off limits to him, right? We, we talk about how, um, you know, that God isn't in this place or God, you know, this, this isn't really God's domain. We think of like, um, we sort of treat him like he can only go where it's appropriate for God to go. But one of the things that would be sort of strange or foreign to the original audience would be the idea, um, or maybe it wouldn't have been strange, but it should have been strange. The fact that God is going to tread on the high places of the earth right so throughout the history of Israel and, and Judah the high places were this remnant of pagan worship that they never quite got rid of right so almost as soon as they come into the promised land um, that that w- wilderness generation begins to fall away from the true true religion of Israel almost right. immediately um, it, it doesn't take long after Joshua dies, Um, for everything to fall apart again. And so Israel and Judah, more so in Israel, but also in Judah, they start setting up these shrines on geographically high places. So like the highest part of a town or the highest part of a region would have a little altar on it. And in Judah, primarily, they would go there and they would worship Yahweh. Um, in in Israel, they were kind of anybody's guests, and they would worship whoever they happened to be worshiping that day. Um, but even in Judah, they were still worshiping in ways that were contrary to God's prescription for worship. Right. And so not only is the Lord going to come, come out of his heavenly temple and into his earthly temple. But he's he's sovereign over even those high places. And this speaks against this idea of sort of a regional deity, which is a really common way of looking at the supernatural world in the ancient Near East, is you have these regional deities, you have the Baals, you read about the Baals, plural in the scriptures. And what it was is there were regional deities that had authority or power in these different geographical areas. But as soon as you got outside of that area, you're no longer under uh, the, the authority of that deity and that deity couldn't do anything. But the fact that the Lord comes out of the heavenly temple and doesn't just come to the, the, the sanctioned places of worship, he doesn't just come to his temple, but he treads upon the high places and as, as though they were nothing to him, that speaks again to God's universal sovereign power over all things, whether right. it's a sinful area or whether it's not. So like we might, we sometimes sort of subtly act like, well, God's not in uh, the strip club, right? We talk, we think about it like, well, God, God's not going to sully himself by being present and sovereign over Uh, the crack house down the street. But in reality, God tramples over those things the same way he tramples over anything that he desires to trample over. It's not like God's power is restricted just to where the church is geographically or just to where the people of God are physically. But God's sovereignty is over all places.
0: Right. Yeah, I love that. There's so much of that in this particular text. And there's so much of that in, again, the context of the power that's taking place or the power struggles, rather, that are happening in Micah's time. Because I think one of the things that's been helpful for me in understanding exactly where he's coming from and the message that God is delivering through him is to understand something that's actually insanely contemporary. Like, this just seems yeah. internally contemporary. And that is, at this time, all of this economic prosperity and all the absence of international crises, which marked, like, the days of Jeroboam second, the king, during which like the borders of Judah and Israel rivaled those of David and Solomon, which you mentioned before, all of that was slipping away. It was coming to an end. So here you have this people that for the longest time are doing the very thing that God warned them against, which is when everything is awesome, everything is awesome, do not forget (laughs) that I am your God. Do not forget that you are contingent beings. Do not forget that you are my chosen people and that I will deliver you into the hand of your enemies if you forsake me. And so after the prosperous reign of Uzziah, you have, who you mentioned already before in the text, Jotham, he continued these same policies of honoring God, but he didn't remove the centers of idolatry. And so what you end up with is this group of people that thinks they can do it on their own. Everything has mostly been great. They've had all this wonderful prosperity. They're fairly wealthy. They're well taken care of. And... They're also religious to a sense. And so you have right. this outward prosperity, which really was only a facade masking this rampant social corruption and religious syncretism. Yeah. So you have the worship of the Canaanite fertility god Baal, which you mentioned, and that's been increasingly integrated with the old testament sacrificial system, which which you can imagine with just how much that grieved and angered God. And that reached like epic proportions, of course, under the reign of Ahaz. And then when Samaria fell, which we referenced before, you have all these refugees which swarmed into Judah and they brought their own religious syncretism in them. So in other words, here you have a culture that's very much not unlike our own, where we feel like mostly we can do it on our own. We're fairly well off. And we have all this syncretic behavior in terms of trying to amalgamate all these different religious experiences. And at least on the outside, seem like we're very pious people on the whole, but on the inside, really are moral were morally inept and completely bankrupt. So yeah. here is this disintegration of personal and social values. And this is the context in which Micah is going to deliver all these really stinging rebukes and stern warnings. And I find that disturbingly contemporary.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we have this tendency, in addition to sort of this uh, subtle feeling that, like, God doesn't really have authority over the areas of the world that, uh, are not in conformity to his will. Um, we, we also think that like the way things are, are stable and static. And so this next little chunk of the text here in verse four, take the most stable, static things that anyone can imagine, right? The mountains and the valleys, like right. over the course, e- even if you take a long age or an old age perspective of, uh, of the earth, over the course of a human's year uh, lifetime, the mountains and the valleys are not changing, right? I mean, it, it, catastrophic things happen where we do see some changes, but by and large, there's no change. And even that giant static reality melts like wax before the Lord, and it pours down, uh, it pours down like a water down a hill, like those, those images of Um, you know, wax is unstable, like, you know, wax is unstable. And the second it's exposed to any sort of heat whatsoever, it becomes liquid and just falls through your fingers. And that's the picture that is given to us of what it will be like when the Lord comes, is that not only the physical, right, this this is talking about physical things. Obviously, we know that like when when Assyria came and conquered Israel and when Babylon came and conquered Judah, the mountains didn't melt like wax, so we know that this is language that's prophesying something uh, symbolically. The institutions of Israel and Judah, the the priesthood, the kingship, um, the governance of Israel and Judah, is what's in view here as far as what it is that crumbles and falls apart. And then, in a more remote sense. The governments of Assyria and Babylon are also in view because those also we see later in the book, he'll prophesy a little bit against them. And then Nahum and some other uh, some other later contemporaries speak strongly against Assyria. Those institutions also crumble before the Lord's might. So we have this picture and then we'll move on to verse five and uh, five and following here. But we have this picture of the Lord coming in judgment and he comes in wrath his judgment is poured out uh, on all people uh, as a witness against them and and the institutions that people thought were stable and static the government institutions their families the way of life they enjoyed um all of that is nothing before the lord's might nothing stands in his way no more than a candle stands in the way of wax or water stands in the way of gravity right those 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 realities, wax and water, they are absolutely undone by the simple elements of of fire and uh, gravity. That's what the text is saying here, is that as easily as those are undone, these institutions, these things that people rely on, those will also be undone by the Lord's coming.
0: Right on. There is something beautiful about the literal and the figure of there in the use of this mountains example, because you're right, I think that where it's, it's to express the full, actual, literal, physical power of God to undo and melt molecules of rock. That, that's yeah. the kind of power we're talking about. And elsewhere in the scripture, especially in the Psalms, uh, you know, David recounts this idea that God touches the mountains and they melt. So right. we have here just sheer, unbridled, unadulterated power, which is scary. And at the same time, this idea of God basically making the mountains low and the valleys high, he is a God who levels everything out. He's a God of purity right. and verity and equality. And so Micah here is proclaiming this message, starting with this example as a judgment on people who are persistently pursuing evil. He's just like other prophets, at least in that sense. But he's presenting this message again, like in this kind of lawsuit courtroom terminology, even with use of like the mountains here, because he's talking about equality, God weighing out the scales in his judgment in a way that's righteous and perfect. Yeah. So in the name of the God of Israel, he's challenging the elite from the standpoint of of this violated ethos of traditional communal solidarity embodied in the covenant law. And that's, what's beautiful. You get that even in this example of the mountains, which I love that you brought up.
1: Yeah. So reading here in verse five, and I'll go all the way through the end of this pericope. He says, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols. I will lay waste for from the fee of a prostitute. She gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute. They shall return. So, um, after he's after Micah has established here that uh, the Lord's coming is a universal reality, that the judgment the Lord is issuing is a universal reality, he's starting to narrow down the scope of his prophecy, or the prophecy is narrowing down in scope. Obviously, Micah is not determining what he's prophesying. It's narrowing down specifically to... Uh, Samaria or Israel, the 10, the 10 kingdoms, the Northern tribes and Judah. And so just in this first part, after he says, uh, says that he starts to talk about what's going to happen to Samaria. And what, what's interesting is when you first read this, you think, oh, you, God's going to make it into a vineyard, right? It's another, another one of those places where if you don't read in context you just pull out the like cross-stitched on a pillow part of it, you read, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country. Well, that doesn't sound great, but this is a place for planting vineyards. Like, well, that's great. We love vineyards. But what he's really saying is I'm going to destroy everything. God is going to wipe out all of the edifices, all of the buildings, all of the civilization and culture and society that exists in the 10 tribes will be gone. It'll be like a farmer who plows through his field and takes all of the stones that he finds and dumps them in the valley or piles them up in a corner of his field so that he can have a clean field. That's what Samaria is going to be like when God is done with it, when the Assyrians are done with it. It's going to be this empty, this empty field with nothing built in it a place where you could plant vineyards. So rather than being like a happy thing, which I think sometimes you read it and you're like, Oh yeah, a place for vineyards. It's not, it's a sign of judgment that there won't be any more buildings. There won't be any more, uh, things getting in the way of farming as it were.
0: Right. And there's something also, I think when I read this or I've heard you just read it, that's almost eschatological in nature. So here you have God saying everything that is an idol. Everything that is not God will be cast aside, will be utterly right. destroyed. And there's something interesting too. You, you hear almost in this, the full scope of this disaster, you just spoke about this physical destruction. But beyond that, we talks about pouring down these stones into the valley, again, taking the high places literally and removing them where there was acts of idolatrous worship, but also basically the high points of society. Those right. who have been, used their power over others in a way that's absolutely inappropriate will be laid bare And this is where we get into this uncover her foundations, this idea that here is God's city, so to speak, God's people, and they're being put in the most vulnerable place. Everything where they thought that they were able to hide who they were and what they were really doing in the dark places of their lives and in their own homes, that's going to be made completely brought into the light. So all all the idols will be set aside. All of the economic accomplishments will be destroyed. All the wages will be burned with fire. And by the way, all the wages, even that you you earned, those are from the fee of a prostitute. So we have this like just utter sense of how despicable everything was. Even the things which they prided themselves on having achieved were all from a foundation of idolatry that actually pursued evil over God himself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's... um... I'm trying to put myself in the mind of the elite in, in Samaria and Judah, because you have this, this sort of rube coming from Morsheth, this, this rural guy coming into the sort of elite centers of, uh, Jerusalem and Samaria. And, and it's, it's funny here because he doesn't, there's no punches pulled here. Right. He says, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. And then he goes on to ask these rhetorical questions with the answers. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? So, so the transgression of the 10 kingdoms is the capital of the 10, the 10 tribes. It's not, it's not the, the hoi polloi, right? It's not the average person in the street. That is the problem. It's the, it's the elite center of Samaria. And then he goes, what's the high places of Judah? And the answer you would expect would be these idolatrous centers in the high places, but he goes straight for the throat. And he says, no, it's not the high places out in the country it's the religious institutions in Jerusalem that are committing the idolatry. And th- this helps us to understand, right? The, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is one of the most, um, it's like the largest reversal of fortune that you can think of in, or reversal of stories you can think of in the Old Testament. The one place on earth where God physically dwells, among his people, right? His name is there. He's planted himself there. There's a visible, physical representation of his presence and it still gets destroyed. And the reason is not because God is not powerful enough to protect his sanctuary. It's because his people have turned his sanctuary itself into a center of idolatry. The temple itself became a high place. And so, so Micah here is going for the throat and he's saying, there is nowhere in in Samaria or Jerusalem, that is uh, beyond the reach of God's judgment. In fact, the places that you would look at as centers of prosperity and centers of religious piety, those are actually the places where the sin is the most severe.
0: Right. Right. And that is like a game changer in, in terms of this yep. narrative, because in some ways, this is no different than in 1 Samuel, where we are the people of God basically saying of the ark, it's our good luck charm. Like, let's yep. bring it. God would never let that be captured. And so if we can just leverage God to our liking and for our own ideals, then we know it'll be okay. It's also no different than when the disciples are chilling with Jesus and they're walking in Jerusalem and they're basically like, look at how awesome the temple is. And yeah. Jesus is like, yeah, that thing's going to get destroyed, just so you know. Yep. Uh, they're just taken with it by its sheer enormity and beauty, as if because God has given himself there in like the Shekinah glory, like you've said, that they can leverage that for their own means. So I think here we just continue to see this idea of people saying to God, Either one, I do not need God anymore, or two, I can use God how I like. And I can take allegedly the things that are part of his character and use them for my own preferences and purposes. And he will never essentially go against his own people. And he switches up the script and says, if you want some, come and get some. And by that I mean, then he goes out and destroys them.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's. This is a theme that we see in all of the prophets. Um, Jeremiah picks up on it, right? There's that passage that Christ himself alludes to when he's Um, when he goes in to cleanse the temple and he calls it a den of robbers. He's alluding to a passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah prophesies and says, you've turned this temple into a den of robbers. And rather than understanding that, the people were treating the temple as as this sort of this talisman. It was like home base in a game of tag where they were saying like, well, Babylon can't do anything to us because we have the temple of the Lord. And so Micah, who Jeremiah actually recognizes in his writing later on as a prophet. He, he kind of quotes Micah, and Jeremiah picks up on this theme that, no, no, the, the temple isn't going to save you. The fact that God's presence is in the temple is not going to save you, because if you pollute and corrupt the temple as you have, then God will, be, will will leave the temple. His glory will depart, which of course we see in Ezekiel. His glory will depart, and now you have nothing. Now you have an empty stone building that the invaders will simply knock off its foundations, strip down for resources, and leave in a pile.
0: Right. And it strikes me that that den of robbers language, which is, if you think about that, really interesting that Jesus says it that way, is, I think, very much in line with what Mike is speaking about here. Because when you think about a den, a den is a hiding place. So the den of robbers is not necessarily where people go to... T- take their craft of thievery to the extreme level. It's a place where they go and hide out. So right. here you have them gathering in a congregated place, basically making it their own. They're participating in these ill-gotten gains. But as you said, this is the place where they think they're safe, where they can hide out and be at peace. Yeah. And they're leveraging God's house in that exact way. And so I think the question that we have to contend with as we go through this particular series starts right at the beginning. And that is, how are we like Israel? Because we're often tempted to think when we read this, how are we unlike Israel? Yeah. But here we have, I think, a lot of things that are levied against us that we're, we can easily fall into in very subtle ways. And we all have a tendency to manufacture, to quote Calvin, idols. Is that Calvin? Yep. Yeah. It was either Calvin or Edwards, but I wanted to go with Calvin. And so I think that we have to be very careful about the way in which we speak of God, the way in which we speak of his presence and the way in which we are prone to use and leverage the things of God in a way that suits our own purposes and inevitably leads to us creating God in our own image. And I think part of that goes back to what you said about our tendency to restrict God to certain places because we believe he will not show up there or he has right. no control or no desire to control those things. Even that, I think, betrays that we are very much like Israel, then we are very much not like them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that wraps up this section of the text. I'm super excited for this series, Jesse. You know, I was excited going into it. I was excited as I was sort of picking up my commentaries and I was starting to read. But after talking tonight, I really think that this is going to be a chance for us as a podcasting community, right? The Reformed Brotherhood is not just me and Jesse. It's all of us who are, are participating in this podcast, whether it's right Question on. Cast or people sending in emails. So here's what I want to do with our listeners is I want, I want everyone this week to go and I want you to read through the entire book of Micah. And I want you to pay special attention to, to chapter one, verses one through seven, and post on our Twitter what you're learning from the Lord. Right, we're gonna do that for our spiritual conferencing. Um, So post what you're learning from the Lord out of the Book of Micah from the first chapter here. uh, hashtag Spiritual Conferencing hashtag hashtag Blessed hashtag Blessed Um, and and we'll see what we find out. Right, we'll see what we learn and how we grow as a community. But God's word never returns void. So whatever whatever He's doing with it, He has a purpose in us doing this series. He has a purpose in you hearing it. He has a purpose in you reading it. So I'm really excited to see uh, what God's going to do through uh, through this study that we're going to do.
0: I am too. And one of the things that strikes me because we're at the very beginning is I think there's something pastoral about this that's even beyond the words that are written for us. Yeah. And what I've been thinking about in that sense is just that here you have this guy, Micah, who really, for all intents and purposes, by any other measure, is really a nobody, not from a particularly well-known place no particular lineage that's of renown or famous. And in the same way, we just see this is the grace of God, how he uses people for his purposes, how he values people. If you were to, I say, line line up or take applications or resumes, I doubt, based on what we know, that Michael would be the person that you would choose to deliver this message, particularly because... I would presume, in some respects, that he would be presu- presumed as pejorative in these urban settings because he 's yeah. just like a dude from the country he 's a guy that would have no sensibilities presumably about this kind of urban life of what he speaks and here we have God in some ways once again using the weak to confound the strong yeah. and so I think there 's something in that for all of us that it 's amazing that God would spend any time with us that God would think anything of us even as as david writes that We are just, you know, a little bit lower than the angels. And beyond that, we just see God and his graciousness using a guy like this. Now, the prophetic office, of course, is closed. But I think at the same time, there's great encouragement in this. That really what God asks of us is like Micah to be faithful to the calling that he's given us. And yeah. to move away, like I said last week, from trying to pursue every potentiality and every opportunity to really hone in on what our call is, because God is equipping us for that exact purpose. And even if you think you are very small, I mean, in a sense, that's true. But in a much bigger sense, God has these wonderful plans, not Jeremiah-style plans, not that nonsense. Unless, <laughs> unless you're going into exile, then yes, that's absolutely true for you. But uh, these plans that God has uh, to use us and to grow us into sanctification in a mighty way, even if it's, that's just, and I say that almost ironically, just in your own sphere of influence. So in some ways, it's been kind of a clarion call to me to get up, uh, realize what's going on here, that God is using all of his people, all his children are valuable to him. And there is a plan that he has for us.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's it's funny that you bring up Jeremiah, because I think one of the things we're going to learn, and I, I alluded to this earlier when we started this show here, is the church of today, the church in our era, is very much like the church in Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah's time. And so I actually think that applying Jeremiah twenty nine eleven to us now is much more appropriate than it has been in other parts of church history, because the church the church the, the whole universal church the the visible church on earth by and large especially in the western world has become bloated and has squandered the opportunities we've had and has exchanged Uh, true devotion and piety for the Lord, for uh, political power, for ease of life, for prosperity, for all sorts of things. And, you know, I I sometimes get frustrated with certain figures in our world who seem to want to act as though the fact that someone uh, doesn't want to hear what they have to say is persecution yeah, maybe in a roundabout sense it is, but we really are coming to a point. And and I think that it's safe to say that the judgment is coming from God on the church, right? The, the, The refining and the chastisement that is coming is coming from God, and it's coming to purify the remnant of the church. And so, yeah, God does know the plans that he has for the church. He does have plans to prosper us and to give us a hope and a future and not to do evil to us. But even in the context of that, that still involves us going into exile, right? That going into exile is God's plan to prof- prosper us and to give us a hope in a future, not right. to do evil to us. So we have to, we as we pull out little nuggets of hope and and nuggets of a promise of salvation out of Micah. Um, yes, all of it points to Christ, um, but. Some of it also we need to understand is applicable to us because we're we're heading into exile, just like the people that he was prophesying to give hope to were in a very different sense. Right. We're not going to be political exiles. We're not being moved, removed from our land. But the church is going into the wilderness. It's going into Babylon. And we're going to we're going to have to figure out how to be an exile church rather than the church on Earth acting as the church triumphant, which I don't know that we've ever really been, but we have to get used to that idea because that's really where we're going. And so I think Micah will be a source of a little bit of uh, hard love, but also a a lot of encouragement as we see that.
0: I don't know. That sounds super judgmental.
1: Five stars. (laughs) Five stars. Yeep. (laughs) That's going to be our new rallying cry. I know. Five stars. Yeep. Yeah, I don't even know. Somebody, uh, somebody turned that into a song. I don't know. I, I have all these weird calls that I make to like challenge people, and nobody ever does it.
0: Womp womp womp. Well, I would say at this point, until we yeep next time. <laughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.
1: Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Take a look. It's in a book, a reading rainbow.